I mean, it's, uh, I just think, and probably I had to answer that question 50 years ago, I wouldn't have any idea what the answer, but I do know now uh, that Jesus will um, hear a prayer and provide guidance and direction, um, and if, and he's all powerful and knowledgeable, um, I may not even like the answer. Yeah. You know, of the, I guess the, the prayer is to know that I've got an answer, and what is it? Yeah, I I think we try, it's such a sensitive topic, I'm trying to, you know, speak very carefully, um, you know, but uh, I think that sometimes in the past, and I think we, this is something that we, we do, we try to oversimplify things. I like it when my life is simple, you know, but life isn't always simple. Um, and I think that sometimes, even in the church, we have treated things in a way where we recognize that some things are black and white, some things are wrong, some things are right. But what I think that sometimes happens is that when people step to the wrong, that we don't always recognize the complexities that got them there. So we don't always respond with compassion. And then we don't extend the grace. And, and I, I, think that that's, I think that's harmful on a, on a range of issues. You know, and I'm not talking about excusing sin or pretending like something isn't sinful. It's just meeting a person where they are and recognizing Christ came for sinners, right? Jesus says, I came for the sick and not for the healthy. Follow that through. So if you want Jesus to have come for you, you have to be you have to be one of those six sinners. You know, and, and some of this is hard. Yeah, Sharon. I'm just thinking about the law and the gospel since I'm kind of, uh, I would say, what do you want to call a sidecar Lutheran? <laughs> um, but I've, you know, I've been under your tutelage for quite a while, and I think that sometimes people get tripped up in um, taking too much heart with the law and the law is there yeah and the law is is God's righteousness that we can never attain and so when I think of this passage of scripture I think of the law and its harshness and I can't read it without the gospel because the gospel then strengthens the law with grace and I think you know I'm just thinking about raising children and trying and, and further growth in myself that the measuring stick for, for my righteousness that I need 
is the law. I have to have it. But I know I'm always going to fall short. And so it's, you can't throw the law away. But the mercy of the gospel, I think, has to be the light of our witness, is what I yeah. feel. That that's the light of our witness, even though we have to be anchored in the law, or we could go willy-nilly anyway without an anchor. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's, that's how you know, I, I read the scriptures, and I think too often we take either the law and we're forever judged over and over and over again and we do not feel the freedom of forgiveness or we um, what I want to say we manipulate for our own use the gospel so yeah. that we never have to come to contrition Right. and um, I don't think you really feel the extent of the mercy of God without the law and I think about the order of service and the contrition and the confession and then the forgiveness. So I think all of those steps, not just in divorce, but in all of the harshness right. of the law, we have to come to terms with. Right. Yeah. Um, when we talk about the law, we often talk about, you may have learned this, the three uses. I like the language three functions. Um, and, uh, you know, the law acts as a curb, a mirror, and a guide. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, so the curb says don't do it stop here, right? Uh, at some point or another, I would be willing to bet we all hit a curb, um, you know, with the car. You know, it... Jolts us. Yeah, you know, and, and, and the curb, if it's a good curb, you don't, you don't jump it. You know, you're, you're, you're stopped. You're stopped. <laughs> the mirror is the confession side of the law. Then where we look at it and we say, my sin is sin, and I let it be sin because I know my Savior. But then there's that guide aspect, and that's where out of love for God and love for neighbor that we take the law and say, there is wisdom here to live in you know, as a forgiven child of God. So, um, uh, you know, when, when we talk about um, biblical sexuality, biblical sexuality is it's different than the world's sexuality. You know, there, there's a whole different ethic. Um, and I think if I could put it in a nutshell, and, and, and this is a really broad stroke and, and maybe needs refinement, but biblical sexuality is focused on um, a relationship with, you know, between, well, it's turned outward. Because sexuality is more than sex, you know. Um, you know, it's it's this whole thing about who we are, male and female. Um, but uh, um, when we when we um, when we we look at what what is what is this identity that we have uh, as male or female? What is it for? In a sense. I think biblically speaking, we are created to be who we are for the sake of our neighbors. That our hearts are intended to be turned outward toward others. Um, whereas the world would maybe look at that and, and say that sexuality is about me. And it's how do I gain um, you know, 
the pleasures and the things that I am looking for. And so it becomes something that, you know, it's love turned inward. And I think that's part of the reason there's a lot of confusion uh, on, on the topic in our world today. Um, you know, when you look at all the different things that are going on right now, um, I, it's a challenging time. You know, and uh, and there there's a lot of confusion about male and female, and you know degrees of, of you know expression of of, of what that um, sexuality is. And I want to be really clear that the Bible is not prudish. You know, this is one of the things that we Christians are often um, accused of is you know being prudes and wanting to be killjoys of other people's fun. But but that that that's that's not actually the way that we look at sex. Um, even the Puritans, okay, these are the people that you know the, the, they love to deride the Puritans for being so prudish. <laughs> they had dozens of kids. That doesn't happen by osmosis, people. You know, <laughs> so um, you know, I mean. Look at the families in the Bible. They might be a hot mess, but they're often big families, okay? Um, so the Bible's not prudish, but it does recognize you know, our sexuality as a gift from God. You know, he created them male and female. There, there, there's a gift that's involved in, in being male and a gift that's involved in being female and in that, that relationship. Um. This gift is connected to to procreation. Have you ever thought about that word? What you know to procreate, to create life. The, this the, the whole idea behind the word is that that God has put the, the the power to create life in people, and He is creating life through people. This isn't just, you know, random biology. It's, it's, it's a design. Uh, the, uh, the act of, of sex is intended to be as part of a lifelong commitment. Marriage. It's for husband and wife. And when you read the Bible, you will see that this design is often violated. The Bible isn't one of these books that sits there and says, you know, oh, look at our people. They were all perfect. Read Genesis. These people were an absolute mess. Just, just take, I mean, just take Jacob. Jacob worked for years to marry a woman. On the marriage night, his father-in-law switches his daughters, gives him her sister. So he agrees to work for another period of time to marry the other one. And that's not enough. Then these two have servants that they then give to Jacob to have children on their behalf. You know, this this is not a book of you know look at our saints that you know they're such wonderful heroes, these are people who live by grace. You know, and the Bible is consistent from from beginning to end uh, on on this topic. It's realistic, 
it recognizes that people do not live up to the sexual standards that God gives to us. You know, and so when Paul is using this example here in Romans, everybody knows what he's talking about. You know, that, you know, if there's a divorce, yep, we've seen that. You know, if there's widowing, yep, we, we, we've seen that. You know, it's just real life. In the Sixth Commandment, uh, in the Catechism, I always found this fascinating. So I'm going to read the Sixth Commandment. And I'm going to read its meaning, and I want to see if you notice anything different in the formulation of the explanation of the Sixth Commandment as compared to the others. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Do you notice anything about that? Yeah, they're they're almost always. Um, you should fear and love God so that you do not, or we do not. Mm-hmm. It lists out what you should not do, but, and then it says what you should do. Okay, so it, it, what it kind of does is it actually starts with the curb when Luther explains this. It says these. You know, this is what you shouldn't do. Stop here. And then when it gets to the butt, it gets to the guide. You know, th- this is how you're supposed to live out of love for God and love for neighbor. Yeah, to understand the gifts of God and honor it. Yes. And, and, and he, doesn't even, he doesn't even speak to anything negative here. It, it, it's all gift. It, it's all recognizing, you know living in that relationship of, of um, forgiveness and love. So sometimes people will say that Jesus was not very vocal on this issue. You know, this is particularly in conversations about homosexuality. You know, Jesus never condemned it. You're right, those words never came off of his lips. But he didn't have to. It, that was a standard that was agreed upon in his society. And when he speaks about this, he, he speaks in, in terms of marriage and he speaks in terms of, you know, uh, when he talks about adultery, he speaks about forgiveness, but then he says, you know, go and sin no more. You know, that there's forgiveness for all of this. So what is the image that Paul is presenting here regarding us and the law? In chapter 6, verse 3, he talks about how we die in baptism and are set free. And in chapter 6, 5 through 7, we are set free from slavery to sin uh, by his death. I'm not sure if he's got a mixed metaphor going on here, you know, but on the one hand, um, it, it's as if we were wed to sin, and then Jesus' death puts sin to death to set us free. That Jesus becomes our sin. This is 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin. Jesus becomes our sin and he dies on the cross. Leaving us widowed. And free to remarry our resurrected Christ. That, that's that's the, the picture that you know, he's presenting here. Um, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then in Matthew 16, 24, that should be 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's all about death and life. Jesus' death gives us his life. And what we're called to do is not to live perfectly, but to take up his cross. And there's a there's a dying to self there. And you know, so what what Jesus what, what Paul is teaching us here, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Paul, is that in Jesus' death, that bond that held us in slavery to sin is broken. And now we have a new life. And this is where we get into you know, Ephesians 5, you know, where it talks about wives submitting to husbands and, and, and uh, husbands um, loving your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not a picture of dominion. It's all about living in Jesus' salvation. It's all about living in his love and forgiveness. Anything else on those three verses before I jump into verse four, which you don't have? We need Jesus in every aspect of our life. Yes. Yeah. You know, I've got the line in here where I say, you know, about, you know, can we not sin? Nope. Right. I think that this is so important because I think that that we have been presented a picture that gives us the idea that we can not sin. I I think that, you know, this is part of the way the devil uses the law in us to try to make us confident in ourselves rather than in Jesus. I think that this is part of the reason, you know, I, I, I'm not this. I don't mean this to ding anybody. I just, you know, it, it, I, I'm not even thinking about anybody here or anything like this. But across the years of ministry, I've had people come to me and talk about why they bring their kids to Sunday school, and it's so that they can have a moral foundation. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a moral foundation, but I am saying that my priority is not to give your kid a moral foundation. It's to give them Jesus. To give them forgiveness for their sins. The same forgiveness that I need. The same forgiveness that you need. And then, you know, hopefully the the law acts as a guide in their lives to shape them to live in in a particular way, in in a way that is taking up the cross and following Jesus. But it's, it's not the I'm doing it right thing. Does that make sense? Am I beating a dead horse to death? 
I, I, you know, I, I just find that to be something that, that we wrestle with all the time. You know, it, our worship services. One of the complaints that I got so often, uh, um, I haven't heard this recently, so if you want to take it up, feel free. Um, every worship service, what do we start with? Confession and absolution. Why do we got to start with confession and absolution every Sunday? Well, to ask the Holy Spirit dwells in our heart. Well, we need forgiveness of sins, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and over and over again. You know, I, I heard this. Why do we have to? Why do we have to? Because what's happening here is not about making people better, although I do think it will make us better people. It's about Jesus saving us from sin and death, and then that leads into the other. Not as an act of of uh, my will, but as an act of transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But didn't, have, didn't the Levites also have to do the same thing before they went into the temple of the Lord? They had to, before they could approach the holy being of God, they had to be cleared of their sin. Yeah, they had to offer sacrifices. They had to wash in particular ways. They had to wear particular clothes, which is all about symbolizing that forgiveness and salvation that was theirs. But even that, I think, you notice... Okay, we're going we're gonna to wash, we're going to put on our particular clothes. I think that there was this illusion that, the, that people got from a twisting of the law that, look, I've done the thing. Now I get to go in and do this because I've done the things. You know, and uh, people are people are people across the centuries. And if there's anything that we can grab onto that makes us think that we've done something to earn or to contribute, you know, in some way, you know, we're really good at, at, at deceiving ourselves with that. So verse four, he says, Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is where, you know, you kind of get the sense that you know, maybe he's got a little bit of a mixed metaphor going here because a widow survives her husband's death and is freed, um, but we have died to the law through Christ. You know, and this is why I go back to that 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ's death on the cross is the death of our sin, sets us free. That's that image. But now he's talking about us dying. Remember that Jesus' death is substitutionary. He dies in our place. Therefore, you died. That's a passive verb. Yes, yeah, Sam? And the good thing is we don't just die. We have the gift of eternal life. You bet. You betcha. You got that. You know, when I'm doing the um, devotions with the, uh, the preschoolers, I will regularly mention that Jesus died for our sins. And I love asking the question next, but did he stay dead? And I love it when the kids all in chorus, no. Yeah. That's, that's the heart and the core of this. And that's the thing that we need to keep going back to. So in Romans chapter 6, he, he ties us to, to our baptism, that we have the, this, this new identity. Um, are any of you familiar with the show Mad Men? 
This is not an endorsement, okay? <laughs> um, uh, Our pastor said. <laughs> don't watch it. That's what he said. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I don't want. You know, I'm not. I, I don't want to be prudish about any of this stuff. You know, I, I think we need to protect our hearts and minds. But I also think that you know, to engage the arts and to recognize what's going on in the world is actually a, a good thing. There are things that you know probably cross lines or are like, I, no, keep that away from me. But on the other hand. Um, uh, so the main character of the show, Mad Men, is this guy named Don Draper. And uh, spoilers here. So if you're listening to this online and you love this show and you don't know this, maybe turn it off. Um, but uh, Don Draper was not born Don Draper. And this is kind of the, you know, hidden in the story as it unfolds. Um, he fought in the Korean War. And his lieutenant was a guy by the name of Don Draper. And they were both wounded, and um, he exchanged dog tags with his lieutenant as he died. Because our Don Draper had a terrible life. And he saw this as his opportunity to become somebody different. He took on a, a new identity. Uh, today we would probably call that identity theft, right? Um, <laughs> You know, stealing from the dead, but, you know, um, and that's kind of what happens here in baptism is that our old identity dies and we get a new identity. And then having died in Christ, we get a new life. We belong to another. We belong to someone else. Uh, the word belongs means uh, to be or to become. We become for someone else. Uh, it has to do with the um, coming into a different state of being. We become for Jesus. So we, uh, by extension, we belong to another. And so that, that previous state of being was enslaved and bound in, in sin and death. Um, and the new state of being is freed uh, and alive in Christ. You know, him who has been raised from the dead is how it says it in the text here. So the resurrection is the key reason the apostles present to believe Jesus is God's promised Savior. Um, over and over again, read the book of Acts. The thing that they point to is the fact that the reason, the reason you should believe in Jesus is he rose from the dead. There's a new life here. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus, in his incarnation, in his death, and ultimately in his resurrection. And he says that all, Paul says that all of this was in order that we might bear fruit for God. What, what fruit? What fruit does God want from you? Goodness. What's that? I said, good fruit, he said. Good fruit. Procreate. <laughs> uh, you know, if that's possible in marriage, it's a good thing. Um, you know, that's a blessing. But I think that there are other fruits that he asks for in the spiritual, you know, in our lives. Fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Did you ever notice that he talks in, in Galatians 5, he, he talks about the works of, of sin, but then he talks about the fruit. It goes from works, plural, to fruit, singular, and then he has a whole list. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against these things there is no law. Um, one of the things that we love about our house, well, we love hate about our house, is we have fruit trees. I, I like it when I can pick some apples and enjoy them, you know. But they also fall all over the ground and, you know, and it's messy and they're bees. And, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly the pear tree, just bees everywhere. Um, you know, I could go out every spring and talk with them about how much fruit they're going to bear. Do you think it's going to have any impact on what's going to happen there? Do you think that those trees have any kind of like a 10-year plan in terms of how they're going to... It just happens because they are fruit trees. And you are people who have a new identity who have been made alive in Christ. And I want to urge you to understand the fruit of your life as gifts that are rooted in the gospel. They're not things that you have to manufacture for yourself. They're things that flow from a, a healthy connection to Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you, you can do nothing. But when you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. The word, the sacraments, prayer, all these things that help you to be connected to Jesus. Those are the things that, that he's cultivating you to produce fruit in you. You know, these fruits of the faith, which includes sharing the gospel, sharing the hope that is within you. So, I don't um, I didn't expect to get through all of this, partly because of the fire drill, um, but uh, I will post this last part online, so if you wanted to take a look at that, um, but we'll, we'll pick up with uh, verse 5 next week. So thank you, everybody.